Hey, Hunger family, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Look, I wanted to get all y'all. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of the Hung Up Podcast. You know me, I'm Eric, I'm the host of this here show. Be sure to follow the show on all platforms. I'm talking social and podcasting platforms. All you got to do is search Hung Up Podcast. And as always, thank y'all for listening. I really do appreciate y'all. And remember, if you want to check into the show, say what's up, get some advice, confess to something, or if you want to get some shit off your chest, call the show. The phone number is 484-578-9992. And I'll drop it into an episode. And also for my entrepreneurs, plug your shit Four eight four five seven eight nine 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 two. I especially love to highlight my black businesses. Please call the phone number, plug your shit, and I will include it into the show. With limitation. <laughs> nothing nothing wild, nothing crazy. You know what I mean? Like be respectful, be decent, have some couth. But yeah, call the show. I would love to hear from y'all. So if you follow me on Twitter, you know I love NPR. <laughs> I'm always reposting their stories and their episodes. I always find their content to be really interesting, and I learn a lot. This week, I was listening to Fresh Air, and I heard this incredible story about this woman. Her name is Sharonda Jones, who was sentenced to life in prison, but ended up being pardoned by President Barack Obama. Pardoned after serving 17 years of that life sentence. So I wanted to highlight that story here this week, and I'll be sure to credit the show in the episode notes so you all can go and check it out. But I also want to look at how policing and the criminal justice system has impacted the black LGBTQ community. So to help me with this, I wanted to include someone with a criminal defense background, but also someone who has worked in and with the LGBTQ community. So I hit up my homie, my frat, my tennis hitting partner, Mr. Ira Coates, who is the assistant defender at the Defenders Association of Philadelphia, to shed some light on the topic and to recommend ways in which we, as a community, can impact these issues and move towards equitable change. So let me break this down for y'all. If you don't know who Brittany Barnett is, you will after this episode. Brittany Barnett is a lawyer who's been fighting for people who are serving harsh sentences for decades, people who are serving life sentences for nonviolent crimes for the most part. Brittany wrote a book. It's called A Knock at Midnight. It's about her life, her story, and just her journey to becoming a lawyer and how she got to this place for fighting for people who didn't stand a chance against this system. It's unfortunate that her passion and her desire to help people who fall into this type of situation her passion to help people came out of trauma seeing her mother who was an addict be really just thrown away by the system on the fresh air podcast episode 
Brittany talks about watching her mother um, as she was growing up be on probation and go to take a routine drug test. She would fail it. They would penalize her in some way or give her more time. She would still be on probation. She would go again, take another drug test, fail it, be penalized again, take another drug test, fail it, be penalized again. And what they would do is they would just keep throwing Sharonda's mother in jail. And not because she was really committing a crime against anyone else. She was really just, I liked how they placed it on the episode that it was, she was doing more harm to herself and obviously her kids and her family. But the crime was against herself. But they just kept throwing her away, kept throwing her in jail for it. When she didn't need a jail cell, she needed help. She needed rehabilitation, love, and support. And and we know this. It's really sad how our criminal justice system uh, criminalizes people who really need help when you're facing an addiction, something that is way stronger than you are. You know, and that's why we're advocating for police not showing up with loaded deadly weapons to a call when there is a mental health situation going down. So Brittany pursues this passion and she's a law student at this point of the story. And she just randomly decides to do a Google search on an issue that she was passionate about, which was women serving life sentences in prison. When Brittany Googled that, the first person that came up for her was Sharonda Jones. Sharonda was this woman who was sentenced to life in prison. This was her first offense ever, federal or otherwise, for federal drug conspiracy. Sharonda was not innocent. She absolutely accepted her responsibility in in what she did in the the part that she had in the crime on the podcast they said that she was considered a drug mule someone who transported cocaine for two drug suppliers Sharonda admits to this even though they had no evidence against her now mind you this was a federal case Ira first weighs in on why telling the truth is important and how that can make or break a case. A lot of times as an attorney, especially a criminal defense attorney, we want you to be open and honest with us about, you know, everything that could be good or bad, because if we are trying to put a solid defense together, we always want you to be honest because a lot of times people feel as though they want to give us the version of themselves that they want us to hear versus, you know, how can I put out your fires during a trial, you know, proactively um, if I don't know about the fires until we're at the table in front of the judge and then the defense whips out something where you told me you weren't there on the night in question or you know I wasn't involved and then here we have this video that comes that shows you at that particular location and date and time and um, sometimes it, it works better if we're able to have a little bit better information or connection with the clients where we can be able to be ready for those types of surprises we don't like surprises in court because, I mean, I've watched enough of How to Get Away with Murder. I, 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 I've i seen where Annalise was not happy when she found out about something in court in the middle of trial. 
Yes. And a lot of those things can happen in court. So you won't you won't get the surprise witness. You know, you, you do have to have notice for some things, but there have been plenty of times where I've had a witness get on the stand or a piece of evidence that was slid to me where it said that, you know, you said you weren't doing this or I get their statement that they gave it to the police and it contradicts uh, everything that, that they told me. So, yes, be open and honest with us and then we'll strategize with you on how to properly, um, properly put together your best case. A little later on in the NPR episode, we learned that Sharonda didn't have the best attorney when this all started out to really advise her and give her the best advice. So Sharonda makes a decision that will change the rest of her life. She opts to use her constitutional right to go to trial. My next question for Ira is, why is it that so many people end up taking a plea deal to avoid doing just that, what Sharonda did, going to trial? Fear is the main thing. Um, when people are out of custody, um, it's less likely that they'll take pleas. Most of the pleas that I've seen are people who are in jail, um, people who are either first time people who are in jail because of high bail or a situation where they just can't afford to get out or people who are um, have been a part of the system already and they have you know probation judges, they're on parole and this new case is withholding them so they can't get out until the new case is resolved and a lot of times they think that the quick solution to get out of jail because they don't want to wait because they, they sat in prison for six months, sometimes a year, just waiting for a case to even come to trial. And rather than having to spend another day in prison, they would just prefer to just take the deal, um, believing that it would help them to get out faster. Oh, so a lot of times the taking the plea is really just a way to get out. It is. Um, but in society, it's not seen as that because if you have a conviction, um, I think only only people I've ever seen that have that mindset um, far few in between is attorneys. Like we know if you are convicted of a crime or have a conviction, I should say, it doesn't necessarily mean that you did the crime. If it says negotiated plea, then, you know, sometimes it really was you've been sitting in jail um, for so long that out of desperation, you took a deal to get out, not realizing you're no longer in prison by the walls of the jail, but now you're in prison by the walls of society because they only see you as a convicted felon. So it's um, kind of a catch-22 to trade mm. one one ability to get out to just embrace the shackles of something else. Wow. Wow, because you're really not embraced by the community. Correct. Y'all, this is when things get really wild. So Sharonda goes to trial. The two drug suppliers that she was transporting cocaine for ended up getting a deal if they agreed to testify against Sharonda in court. And they did just that. So they testified against Sharonda and ended up getting a lesser sentence that, than Sharonda got. The two drug suppliers got on stand and testified that Sharonda did, in fact, transport powder cocaine for them. The judge then says, okay, Sharonda, you either knew or you should have known that the powder cocaine was going to be eventually rocked up in the crack. This then allowed the judge to impose even harsher sentences on Sharonda and give her even more time using 
the 100 to 1 ratio sentencing rule. I asked Ira to break down the 100 to 1 ratio rule and to also talk about how that has disproportionately impacted black and brown communities. Uh, In layman terms, it pretty much is uh, lumping everyone up together into the same pot, no matter what the, the amount of drugs it was. So essentially what they were saying was if, okay, say for instance, me and you were arrested for drug charges based on, um, based on this standard is saying that if you had, you know, 15 grams of cocaine and you were alleged to have distributed it um, and I have, you know, 250 grams, even though you only have 15, we essentially would get the same amount of time, which could be up to life in prison. Um, It's a pretty much no holds bar type of type of look into how serious they believe drugs were to say that pretty much everybody's guilty by association and the harsh punishment should be across across the board no matter how how involved or little involved you were and in that particular case i don't even believe that they had evidence that there were any transactions that they ever had any surveillances which is odd because in my case cases there are always um, an alleged buyer, the police watching from a car, you know, something to say that we saw this happen. And in her case, it was even worse than that because they had nobody to even witness this except for these these other drug dealers who were saying that, yep, she had the drugs. I knew she had them. And that was enough for them to say, yes, yeah, she's guilty, even though there was no videos, no police witnesses. Um, and it was under the idea that you're trying to save your own skin by, you know, throwing somebody else under the bus. And it was it was legal still is legal. Wow. That actually goes into one of my next questions, which was explain in what instances must there absolutely be evidence? And then other cases where there doesn't have to be hard evidence. Um, Like in this situation, like you just mentioned, there was no evidence that pointed to directly pointed to or connected Sharonda, except the testimony of the two suppliers. Um, Can you explain the difference between the two? Yes. So in uh, Ms. Sharonda's case, she was being charged federally. Um, I deal with state and uh, with state, there's this burden of, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. So they they would have to put a witnesses to say, as an officer, I, I saw this person, I stopped them, I found drugs. There's all kind of paperwork that ties into these things where you have to show that there was drugs that has to be tested. There's a report that I get that says, yes, we tested this item. It is crack cocaine or marijuana or whatever they're charging you with. And these witnesses have to show up to court. You know, the police arrest you. He has to be there to testify. I get to cross examine. Um, federal is a little different because and even um, the attorney, she joked about it being ghost drugs because she was saying in federal court, all it takes is it's enough to just have someone get on the stand and just say that there were drugs. Um, when in actuality, there were never any drugs presented, never any drugs entered into evidence. Um, and Miss uh, Attorney Brittany Barnett um, said that that was one of the things that makes this um, such a unfortunate situation for a lot of people because you under this under this federal um, federal statute or federal policy, you're able to get past that threshold that we would normally have to get to in state and be found guilty of a crime and serve as harsh of a punishment for someone that is actually dealing the drugs just by saying that you're guilty by association or saying that you were involved in some form or fashion. Um, And that's how Ms. Sharonda found herself in this situation to begin with. 
The Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986 was signed into law by then-sitting president Ronald Reagan. This law would be responsible for the mass incarceration of black and brown people all over the country. It really sets the tone to make the prison system punitive versus rehabilitative. This essentially came around the time of, around the 1980s, late 1980s, um, during the time of the Anti-Drug Abuse Acts. Um, and essentially this was around the time where black and brown people had been affected by, by drugs for, for years. Um, and it really wasn't as, it, there was no idea for really the idea of rehabilitation. It was pretty much, if you are doing drugs, we're going to put you in jail. So this was a hard and fast rule on taking um, the mandatory minimums and pretty much skyrocketing them to say that if you're, depending on the amount of drugs that you had, cocaine, um, it essentially was throwing you in jail for a period of time where you're not getting out either by the time you're in your 50s or 60s, or sometimes it was for life. Um, and it affected us because as you see, um, the reverse on people who aren't black and brown um, later on in the years, it became where now these sentences are being, oh, we're going to do probation. We're going to do some type of treatment facility, some type of treatment program when this was not the option for black and brown people. And honestly, still is not a lot of times where the, um, the ratio of the offers I get sometimes or the offers that you see that people take um, are not are not conducive to the facts of the case, or even just the color of the individual's skin. Um, and looking at people who have prior, a lot of prior history with drugs, um, black and brown people who are first time, um, and you see just the leniency on the sentencing and also the type of offers that they're getting. So um, it is a direct impact on black and brown people, especially when we were the most affected by these drugs um, at the time that this, um, this act came out. Unfortunately, these type of cases have a tendency to sweep up the family and the loved ones of the individual being prosecuted. And that's exactly what happened here. The prosecutor came for Sharonda's mom. Mind you, Sharonda's mother was paralyzed from the neck down. The prosecutor gave Sharonda's mother the same charges they gave Sharonda. Sharonda's mother wasn't sentenced to life, but she was sentenced to 17 years. Brittany suspects that that was purely retaliation against a mother who just refused to give up any information on her daughter. I asked Ira to weigh in on how a system that is was created to seek justice can also be weaponized and used against even the innocent. I think more so recently in this last year, um, having to fight a system that is now harder because of the accessibility of um, just just people um, in general, because now because of COVID and all the injustices that have happened, um, it just adds to the plate of, of making the job itself harder um, on one front. Um, but then you have situations where you start to realize just how much power uh, judges have, how much power uh, prosecutors have when it comes to the trajectory in which a case can go. Um, 
you have situations where if you have a DA who is not inclined or even doesn't understand the idea or want to look beyond just the case and look at the actual person to just take an honest approach to a case to look at their complaining witness to say, you know, their story doesn't sound credible. Let's let's figure out how we can work something out or when the evidence doesn't make sense or if there's something that if the roles were reversed to take an honest just look at it, not because I'm a defense attorney, um, you know, not because you think I'm trying to get my client off, but really to just look at the case. You hold the keys to the prosecution of this case because you're the one bringing it. Um, because we live in a uh, situation where even when a complaining witness uh, brings a case, even a complaining witness says, I don't want to prosecute this case anymore, the DA still has the power over how far a case goes. Um, so the fact that sometimes I have seen situations where, um, based on relationships that the DA has with um, another public defender or um, the vendettas that are out there or even just the mindset that a person is their case and not anything outside of that. Um, I've seen bad offers. I've seen um, where overcharging uh, simply because, you know, they can. Um, and it's not everybody, but it's enough to where the system um, is definitely broken and needs to be needs to be overhauled in some areas. When it comes to the LGBTQ community, I'm curious, have you, um, in your in your work, in your professional work, have you worked in this area or with the, with this spe- specific community? Yes, uh, all the time, especially in, um, in the diversion uh, part of my work and also in uh, trial and criminal matters as well. In what ways do you see the system working against us and what in what steps can we take um, as a community to to do something about it? It's funny thinking about this question. I started to just jump directly into um, the big matters as far as how a lot of um, that community is. Is projected on certain types of certain types of crimes, but honestly, it goes to just the smallest of its human decencies is if a if a particular client in the LGBTQ community identifies um, as a certain um, race or gender or um, identity that people in the courtroom respect that. Um, I've had even just that being an issue um, if they want to be addressed by a certain name um, and even if you make an objection or you bring it to the forefront, um, I've had I've had judges, I've had DAs, um, I've even had officers on the stand in court to correct them multiple times for them to still call them the name that they prefer not to be called. Um, and sometimes even make a joke about it. Um, so even those types of things are things that I feel um, just start the standard in which we represent the LGBT community. Um, and then even going to the cases, um, the idea that that these individuals should be treated um, with just a little bit more level of respect because they more often than not, I've seen them in in assault cases um, or in situations where they are in actuality the victim, but because they defend themselves, all of a sudden they're the ones that get prosecuted. So it's, it's just really opening the eyes of the prosecution to see like the world that some of these clients are forced to live in to understand that every complaining witness that comes forward um, or every allegation, even if it's by someone in a uniform, doesn't necessarily automatically make it true. Um, and to have them look at just the whole picture 
Um, so that way, if they are honestly prosecuting a case, that they're doing it um, in a way that they are comfortable um, based on the facts and not on, based on what they feel, um, based on biases that they may have that um, people in, in their department or in their uniform can't be uh, misleading or telling uh, not telling the truth. At the end of the day, Brittany knew that there was no way she was going to get Sharonda out of jail using the legal system or through the courts. It was just going to be impossible. So in November of 2013, she filed a request for clemency. After several different committees, offices, and people looked and approved this, it would eventually land on then-President Barack Obama's desk. He approved the request, and Sharonda was able to go home. But not before her mother passed away. Her mother died in prison, so she wasn't able to witness this. Here is Brittany Barnett on Fresh Air describing the moment that she got the call. In December of 2018, where it was the week before President Obama made his annual family trip for the holidays to Hawaii. And we were all hopeful that President Obama would grant a round of clemencies for the holidays. We had hope for the holidays. And Monday of that week passed, Tuesday passed, Wednesday passed, Thursday passed, and no clemencies. And that Friday, I was driving around running errands with my mama. We were preparing for a Christmas program for girls with incarcerated mothers through Girls Embracing Mothers. And around noon that day, I got a call, and it was a number from Washington, D.C., and that was the day. It was an attorney from the office of the pardon attorney's office, and she said that she was calling to let me know that President Barack Obama had granted executive clemency to Sharonda Jones. And I still get emotional thinking about that day because that meant that with the stroke of his pen, President Obama had saved her life. Here are some stats when it comes to the LGBTQ plus community. According to the Urban Institute, LGBTQ people are overrepresented in rates of incarceration and prison victimization. The article goes on to say that this is due to the fact that LGBTQ people simply just face higher rates of incarceration and often find ourselves in situations or places or events where there just is a high level of policing. Prior to the early 1960s, sodomy was a crime in all states, and that really opened up the door to allow police to infiltrate our spaces and to harass us. According to a 2012 National Inmate Survey, out of the people who self-identified as lesbian, gay, or bisexual, researchers were able to conclude that members of the LGBTQ plus community are jailed at a rate three times higher than the heterosexual, cisgendered U.S. population here. 
58% of transgender people reported some form of police mistreatment in their encounters with law enforcement. Transgender people are also extremely vulnerable to being killed by police and correctional staff. Just on May 27th, Donnie McDade, a black trans man, was killed by a police officer in Florida. The website goes on to say that in 2017, 20% of youth in juvenile justice facilities were either lesbian, gay, or bisexual. 85% of incarcerated LGBT and gender nonconforming youth were also people of color. According to the U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics, during incarceration, more than 30% of LGBTQ people experience some type of sexual victimization, compared to only 8% reported by heterosexual cisgendered people. Members of the trans community who are incarcerated are five times more likely to be assaulted by correctional staff and nine times more likely to be assaulted by other inmates. My last question for Ira was, what can we do? What action can we take? Getting involved um, has been something that I've noticed is something that, that people do a lot here in Philadelphia. Um, and the LGBT is not afraid to get on these platforms or to put their names out there. Um, but it also is about education because a lot of times, even if you're not the person that you believe is um, going to be in a political capacity, even just educating yourself on those who are and making sure that you're also educating them on what you need um, is really big because sometimes you have people who are the advocates for the LGBT community, but there are just so many, um, so many issues and so many hurdles to climb that a lot of times they focus so much on the, the big, big issues that they forget that there, there are a lot of smaller issues that really are um, essential cogs in this wheel uh, that we call the, the justice system. And if we were to start bringing people on board that have those expertise um, and also who all who are able to um, know it from a perspective um, of an LGBT perspective, too, um, I feel just opens the door to a lot more conversations um, that need to be had um, just from an overall experience. So that way, everybody's on the same page um, and just being able to think outside the box on what we need to do. Um, but it really, really starts off from conversations that um, I don't necessarily think we have, even in the LGBT community. I feel like sometimes we keep those conversations to ourselves um, and we know the issues, we know what's going on. But then um, because we aren't always sharing that with people who may necessarily be in power or the people who need to hear it, then a lot of times um, things just don't get done because they either are um, ears are closed to those issues or sometimes they just don't realize because they aren't um i mean they, they don't have those those um, battles and those fights for other ways to find out how you can impact this go to aclu.org and depending on what you can bring to the table how much time you have on your hands they'll give you some options on ways you can get involved whether that be signing petitions that divest money from the police and puts it back into your community, 
whether that be letting you know how you can contact your governors to let them know that clemency, like in this situation with Sharonda Jones, is a pathway to redemption. Or, you know, if you have the time and the resources, like I said, getting help with organizing and hosting your own events in the community and or volunteering your own time to make calls and reach out to other people. And it's great, you know, having different ways that you can impact an issue. It allows all of us to step into the room, have a seat at the table and be a part of the resolution. Thank you for your input, Ira, and for coming on to the Hung Up Podcast. No problem. I enjoyed myself. I thank you for having me. Where can people find you on social media? Facebook is my name, Ira F. Coates Jr. My Instagram is uh, Destined for Greatness, D-E-Z-D-E-N-G-R, the number eight, N-E-S-S. And I'm also on LinkedIn, Ira F. Coates Jr. as well. Thank you, Ira. Thank you so much, Mr. Cole, for having me.